Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast of American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Charles Van Lehman, a fellow at Manhattan Institute, contributing editor of City Journal. I'm Aaron Sabarium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. Aaron, how is your investment portfolio faring? How is my investment portfolio it's, faring, Charles? We're not, we're not a licensed financial advisors. I don't think it was that, that that's that's a curveball. Yeah. You know, around the holidays, one always notices a drop in their bank account as they spend more and more money on travel, on Christmas gifts, on random gifts, you know, on, on random food and novelties they see in the drugstore <laughs> that that seem You're kind of cute. You don't, you don't yes. have a long, you know, a long No, I don't no, I'm I'm very easily tempted by the gods of consumerism. But see, this is this is another reason you need to reproduce. I just follow my money yeah. for like, you know, my kid's college. I don't, I don't know. Just... Yeah. Well, what what comes first? The 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 good savings rate, which enables you to reproduce, or is it that reproducing motivates you to yes. develop good savings? Yes. All of the above. It's all of the above. Most. Okay. Well uh, the 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 investment, and here's 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 your segue. The the investment that has not fared well over the past year. Somebody talked when when it was really at its peak, I like talking to myself into saying I should invest less than 1% of my portfolio in crypto. And I did. And it has not gone well. I mean, I don't feel bad because I invested very little money, but it's not it, it, the, the performance was not stellar. Yeah, I, I have not invested anything in crypto and recent events do not, yeah, on do the not other make hand, me doing, want to invest much better more. Than it was, it's doing much better than it was seven years ago. Fair enough. And long well, run crypto has gone up. Sure. Well, on that note, Charles, what are we going to be talking about today? That's a great way to segue. We're interested this week in cryptocurrency. Crypto is a, a massive and poorly understood market. The statistics I was looking at this very morning suggested global market value is something like $850 billion. It's 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 a major source of wealth for at least some people. It's not clear how much innovation. Obviously, there have been a couple of high-profile crypto-related issues in the news in the past week, most prominently the collapse, the continuing collapse of crypto exchange FTX and the the decline and fall of Sam Bankman-Fried. But this is part of a longer history of volatility in the market. You know, be, 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 people talking about FTX now say it's nowhere near as bad as when the Mt. Gox exchange collapsed seven, eight years ago. But, you know, I, we're, we're, we're interested in, you know, it's, it's, it's a new financial technology. Some people think it's a speculative asset. Some people think it's an elaborate pyramid scheme. Some people think it's like the next thing in, in, in finance. It's going to knock down fiat currency and government and revolutionize the world. I'm more interested in sort of trying to figure out what to think. So, so Aaron, walking into this conversation with our guest, what do you, what do you think about, what is your impression of crypto? Yeah, so I should say that I do not know much about crypto. I barely understand blockchain and am thus really unqualified to have any kind of opinion on it whatsoever, which is why I'm eager to talk to our guest. But I will say to the extent I have intuitions about it, I won't even call them opinions. I've always been struck by how crypto is framed as this decentralizing technology that's resistant to the I guess you could say the sort of synoptic schemes of regulators and technocrats. It's supposed to be outside of the realm of the centralized state capable of crossing borders, of perhaps even, you know, rendering obsolete the, you know, contemporary nation state, all this kind of stuff. And I'm curious as to whether that that kind of analysis of crypto as this radical decentralizing technology 
is going to continue to make sense following the FTX collapse and other things. It seems like there's a lot of pressure for regulators to step in and perhaps to even make this technology more, bring it under kind of the 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 centralized ambit of national governments. And I wonder what that does to both the alleged promise of the technology and also what it does to these kind of almost sci-fi political schemes of a post-territorial political world. Those are really my only thoughts. Again, I don't understand it well enough to have to have stronger opinions beyond that. Fair. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I I think you have a little bit of a stronger grasp. I think I yeah, I'm I'm one of the many people who has like a, a a wallet with a Bitcoin or two in it, dead on a dead on a hard drive somewhere that I try not to think about it very much because you know I was interested in it when I was 13, read a little bit, maybe clicked the right buttons once or twice, and now that's you know, it's like 150 thousand dollars. Never going to recover that. I don't I don't know where that hard drive is. So don't worry about it. <laughs> but but you know I think. I've I've heard the pitch on crypto. I you know I I and we'll talk to our guests about sort of what the what the bullish case is for it. But I'm also a little bit skeptical. A I'm skeptical of the of of sort of its current applications. This is a pretty conventional take. But I'm you know what is being used for besides buying drugs on the internet. But be more substantively, I'm skeptical. There's actually a lot of demand for a trustless currency. It's the it, it it seems like people like fiat currencies rather a lot. And if that's the case, then I'm I'm curious to see in which applications it's likely to be adopted and which applications it's not. So I think those are those are sort of some very broad questions. And I think our guest is a great guy to talk to us a little bit more about the nitty-gritty. Now, why don't I introduce him? David L. Yermak is the Albert Fingerhut Professor of Finance and Business Transformation at New York University Stern School of Business, where he lectures on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, among many, many other topics. He's the author of a number of relevant publications, including Quote, is Bitcoin a real currency in the Elsevier Handbook of Digital Currency? He also holds like 53 degrees. I was looking through his CV earlier. The man has a degree in everything. So he's he's here to defend the value of his expertise. I'm skeptic of the expertise that we are. David, welcome to Institutionalized. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to come on. So, so we'd like to start with a little bit of a provocative question. What is crypto good for? And is it anything besides buying drugs? Crypto is designed as a payment system, and it's a payment system that operates independently of central control. There's no trusted third party that typically, if you write a check or use Venmo or a credit card, there's going to be a bank or a credit card company who essentially keeps the books, ratifies the transaction, maybe arbitrates disputes if people disagree that the right amount might not have been paid and all of this adds both cost and risk that some transactions can be reversed or somehow edited by American Express or Bank of America. And we all pay fees for the privilege of this kind of oversight. So the mission was very libertarian, that the people who launched cryptocurrency wanted a trustless payment system that was independent of any third party, where basically an algorithm takes the place of the banker. And I think they were much more successful than they ever imagined because the thing has grown very, very quickly and at this point greatly exceeds the capacity that was originally put in place to accommodate it. So people use it for a variety of reasons. And one of them is to go off the grid, if you would, which is to evade sanctions, to buy contraband and so forth. There are many 
much more benign uses, such as moving money from one country to another. That typically, if you want to send money from New York to London, which should be easy, it's going to take you a couple days and you'll charge fees of maybe 5%, which all I can say in defense of that is that it used to be 8% and the system has improved a little bit. But with cryptocurrency, you can do it instantly in a much more secure way for virtually no fee. And this is useful not only to big corporations, but to working class people with families in the home country who want to send money back to places like Venezuela. You see, you know, the use of crypto for this purpose is an alternative to the legacy financial system, and it allows them to avoid the high fees and to not worry so much about security and so forth. So it's meant to be a general purpose retail currency and to say, you know, what's it good for is like saying, what's the US dollar good for that we've had money in society for thousands of years, and this is a new type of money. So, so let me let me just sort of dig down in that just a little bit because it does seem like on on the one hand, crypto is a currency or it's ostensibly treated as a currency, but on the other hand, it's clearly an asset. It's you know, it's a it's 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 a thing that people invest in, speculate on, etc. And you could argue, well, the U.S. dollar is an asset in the same way people buy dollars, people buy treasury bonds, but they sure seem to behave very differently. So when we talk about crypto, can can you give us some actually? Yeah, what can, can can you give us a sense of how we can resolve that paradox? Is it a paradox? What is that? What are the implications there? So what you said a moment ago is important that people do invest in foreign currency and you know there are vast international markets. And the fact that people invest in crypto doesn't mean that it isn't also a currency. You know, people invest in euro and in yen and Swiss francs and so forth. Crypto has always been very volatile, though, you know, much more volatile, not only than currencies, but more volatile than gold, even more volatile than technology stocks and you know very risky investments. And I'm not sure we completely understand why that is. I think part of it is that the privilege of trading next, of being first in line to trade, gets auctioned off on the crypto system, that in most markets, people queue up and it's first come, first serve. But in crypto, you can pay to cut the line. And what this may lead to is people with the most extreme beliefs trading at the head of the parade and very sharp differences of opinion leading to people placing extreme bets that are in the end going to whipsaw the price perhaps much more than a regular asset. I think economists have a lot of work to do, though, to explain more you know, why crypto is so risky. But that risk tends to attract investors, that volatility is exciting and you get a lot of young male investors with high disposable income and too much free time who have you know, stampeded into this area looking for the same adrenaline that you might get from gambling on sports or you know, playing the, the Robin Hood penny stock markets and so forth. Is this ability to cut the line, is that intrinsic to crypto or is that just a kind of contingent feature of the currencies that have been set up? Well, there's... At last count, 21,000 and you know people create new ones every day. So there's very interesting design differences between them. But if you look at the big ones like Bitcoin and Ether and so forth, you put a tip on the transaction that would go to the validator or the miner who takes your transaction and builds it into the blockchain. And this tip essentially amounts to an incentive for them to pick you over somebody else with a lower tip. In other words, it's an auction. It's like if there was a restaurant with 12 tables and one waiter, we could all put different tips out to see who gets served mm -hmm. the meal first. 
And this is a very different approach than you see in most financial markets. It's typically extremely tightly regulated who gets to trade first. And there are offenses known as front running, that if you cut the line and especially do this in collusion with a broker, people can get into big trouble for that. There's there's a great interest in fairness that comes from first come, first serve in the minds of the regulators. Crypto markets just put the privilege of trading up for auction, which is very interesting. It's a different way to think about allocating the liquidity in the market by essentially giving it to the highest bidder as opposed to the person who got there first. Just just very briefly, I don't want to spend too much time on the mechanics because I think we're more interested in the in the financial implications. But when you talk about this process of auctioning, can you talk about how a system like Bitcoin or Ethereum actually does that auction? So there are people all around the world who are trying to build the next block on these blockchains. And in the Bitcoin system, you have to guess a random number that will complete a puzzle. Ethereum has very recently switched to a different system that more resembles a lottery where people are picked at random. But whoever writes the block gets a big reward. It's currently six and a quarter Bitcoin. And Bitcoin's trading today for about $17,000. So there's a prize of $100,000, plus you get the tips on the transactions that you pick. So a miner essentially gets two things, the, the tips from people who want to trade quickly and then the reward for having solved the puzzle. These things are known as gas on Ethereum, that you have to put gas in the tank of your transaction to get it to launch. But ultimately, whoever puts the highest tips or the highest gas fee is going to be preferred by the miner simply because it puts more money in their pocket. You know, again, think of a waiter choosing to bring dinner to a set of 12 tables and, you know, they're going to serve the one with the biggest tip first if they were permitted to discriminate in that way. So let's 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 sort of go back to the 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 use cases a little bit. Let's imagine that I'm, you know, I don't know, I'm a I'm a foreign-born native worker in the United States and I'm sending remittances to my family in I don't know, Venezuela, an oppressive country. And you say you could use, I forget the name of, you know, Bolsa, I forget what the term is, or what the, what the name of the organization is. You, you, you could use some other, you know, standard remittance service, or you could get your computer to solve very hard cryptographic problems so that it could spit out Bitcoins, or you can pay somebody else who used their computer to do that and use that money maybe to buy drugs. It is, it is hard for me to see that as, that as a use case that would be sort of like a you know a killer make it make crypto into a killer app. So what is the what is the bullish case for crypto becoming widely used or at least being widely used within certain domains? I think the most bullish case really points to the problems of governments in maintaining the value of their own currencies and the likelihood that people may seek out alternatives. So we have at the moment quite a bit of inflation in our country. The, uh, the U.S. dollar has a return of about minus 8% a year lately, and it's worse in the U.K. and in the Eurozone. The inflation's more in the direction of 10% or higher. So one thing crypto offers is a mathematical formula for the money supply that guards against central bankers who just turn on the printing press. Okay. And it's a problem right now in the Western economies, but you've had catastrophes in places like Argentina, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, you know, lots of countries that lose control over the money supply because they're unable to collect tax. So, you know, crypto is seen by many of the promoters as 
a better way to issue money so that people can predict the future money supply and not worry about inflation eroding the value of their savings. And personally, I have some issues with the formulas and so forth, but this was really the rationale that was put out there by the people who, who launched this, that it would, if not replace the central banks, create a disciplining force, that the central banks would know that this was out there in the shadows so they would tend to rein in their behavior out of fear that, you know, if they printed too much money, people would turn to crypto. We've always had private money that has theoretically been able to, you know, provide something of a check against the government. But this, I think, has created a much larger footprint. It's really gotten the attention of the central bankers in a way that, say, the the Ithaca dollar was, you know, private currency of near Cornell University never really scared the Federal Reserve quite the way that Bitcoin has. This this seems like a, a pretty, you know, classically libertarian case for crypto. Very much I, I, take so. it, I take it, you know, a, a one response you might get is, well, look, aren't there times where we want the central bank, a, left, a more left-wing person might say, you know, we want the central bank to spend more money and we actually need this as a way of kind of controlling our economy. And if they're afraid because of crypto, that might discourage what is actually salutary printing or social spending. Isn't that kind of a, another worry you might have? Yeah. And if you want to find someone who just hates crypto, just go read Paul Krugman, who has made this argument every which way that, you know, taking the tools out of the hands of the government for sound policy management could be very costly. So the people who launched crypto were deeply skeptical about central banks, and they launched it in 2009, which was right at the bottom of the financial crisis. Yeah. You know, the timing of this was not an accident, that they found an audience for this precisely because there was so much angst at the time of the, the GFC, the global financial crisis. And you know, I think there's a range of views on this, and not everybody has to use it, but there are certainly folks who have looked at the GFC, have looked at the pandemic, you know, the trillions of dollars that seem to have been somewhat unnecessary, but were released into the economy. And wondering if you wouldn't have been better off with just a mathematical formula. And I think you have to give the creators of crypto a lot of credit, at least for starting this debate. This is a very old debate in macroeconomics, and they brought it right to the front burner to argue over the principles of a question that really is quite important, no matter which side that you're on. So let me let me ask about a sort of different case because you know, crypto the, the technology underlying crypto, which we might abstract as that that system of trustless of trustless payment, can generalize outside of you. So so you know, Ethereum, one of the currencies that you allude to, isn't actually it, it is a currency, but it's not just that. It's a system for creating contracts generally. Uh, that are that are trustless, don't rely upon some third party validator to make guarantees in the contract between you and me that ensures that the thing that I say is going to happen will happen. Right. You know, I think one of the bullish cases for that technology is if that can get widely adopted, it has a pretty profound. So much of our economy runs on trust, and trust is therefore a source of inefficiencies. If you can get rid of those inefficiencies, you create a lot of value. What do you make of that argument? Yeah, Ethereum, you might think of it as programmable money. Bitcoin allows me to send coins from my wallet to your wallet when I say it's the time to do that. But you can put contingencies into Ethereum and you can have contracts based on the weather, 
based on whether I'm alive or dead, which is another way to say life insurance. It's really a platform for risk management and derivatives. And I think that we have markets for these things, but they're very susceptible to moral hazard that insurance companies go through the whole adjustment process of when they owe you money, they send out teams of people to create reasons that they shouldn't have to pay you. And this tends to undermine the whole relationship between the insured and the insurer. You see people who borrow money and then default, even though they could afford to pay you back because they know the cost of you hiring a lawyer and coming after them and so forth exceeds what you're likely to recover. So all kinds of gamesmanship like this exists in financial markets. And if you had money that just was ruthlessly conveyed from wallet A to wallet B when the contingency was met, we would have a more efficient economy and we wouldn't need to be so skeptical of insurance companies or of people in corporate finance who borrow money and then immediately default. If you're really good at this, you can become president of the United States, you know, you bankrupt five times. And it's the kind of thing that drives up the cost of capital for everyone. And there's the potential of a remedy here for crypto that forces people, right. people to keep their promises. And if you had a machine that forced people to tell the truth and keep promises, you know, wouldn't it be a nicer world that I wouldn't have to worry about people? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it occurs to me that this also, again, it's a double-edged sword. This, this, this vision can be described as a solution to all sorts of problems, an elimination of inefficiencies, all of that. You can also describe it as kind of surrendering control to an algorithm that you know, ultimately has its own, I mean, it's, it's maybe going to ensure that the contract is executed correctly, but in all sorts of cases, you might think, well, you know, what if, what is that algorithm doing, right? How does the algorithm work, especially when it comes to, you know, how money is printed and, and comes into being, et cetera. You know, what, is there any way to kind of democratically check these algorithms or are they really just beyond the realm of any human control? And in most of the blockchains, the code can be modified if you can get a majority of the community to agree to the change. And this leads to some very interesting episodes. So Bitcoin, just to you know, look at a very simple case, there's a lifetime supply of 21 million Bitcoin. They're released at a certain rate every 10 minutes out until the year 2140. But if you could say, you know, I think there should be more, there should be 42 million, not 21 million. And if you could recruit a majority of the nodes on the Bitcoin network to run your version of the software, that's a way to change it. So it's it's bottom-up democracy that resembles, for me, the Swiss process of initiating a constitutional amendment by referendum through citizen petitions. So that you can and you do see protocols being modified by popular demand, that the, the process for doing this is known as consensus. And it's got a certain utopian democratic quality to it. What you worry about, and this is even more true of our regular politics, is that the system can be hijacked by charlatans who say, you know, they're sending rapists, close right. the border, build the wall. And, you know, maybe one of the virtues of math is that you, you don't have snake oil salesmen who can whip up frenzied votes about, right. you know, false information. You worry an awful lot about disinformation 
you know, th this is yeah. rigged. We have to change the technology. And the harder it is to change, maybe the more secure it is against the interference from right. the people. Well, I mean, especially if, if the whole promise of this thing is, ah, we trust it all to the algorithm. You don't have to worry about the whims of humans. But then it turns out that humans actually are just as or more capable of influencing the algorithms as they are regular politics. I mean, that's almost the worst of both worlds where people get lured yeah. into a false sense of security to a system that's even more subject to the whims of kind of motivated actors who, you know, hijack kind of the democratic process. Yeah, I don't know which is worse. And again, I give credit to the Bitcoin and the crypto yeah. promoters for starting this discussion. It's one of the oldest debates in central banking, which is sometimes called the rules versus discretion debate. Should the central bank commit to hard and fast rules or should you have really smart people like Jerome Powell who have discretion on a month to month basis to dial it up mm -hmm. and it down? And there's been a lot of Nobel Prizes on both sides of this debate. And I think that crypto makes the focus very sharp by really putting an algorithm out there and a very interesting way to perhaps modify it. But you you really need to consider carefully, do we trust the people more than we trust the math? And you know the, the advent of computer networks that are powerful enough to really do this on a global scale, you know, for the first time brings these issues into a very different setting. And as a professor, it's fun to talk about this stuff. I don't know if I'm personally ready to replace the Federal Reserve, but there are certainly days here and there where you sort of wish <laughs> you could. And you know, when people nominate Herman Cain to yeah. be a governor of the Fed, you think, is this really better than the math in crypto? It's, you know. <laughs> what well, one quick clarifying question, just so I understand. So th this voting process for changing the algorithm, is it usually a majority of all the nodes in the network have to say yes, or is it just of the nodes in the network that vote, which could be maybe only 30% of the nodes in the network, a majority say yes? It's really not an election in the classical sense. It's a cumulative thing that you, if you're unhappy with the software and someone puts a new version out there, you can start running the new version. And cumulatively, if enough people start to run it, you have a rival. And if Okay. Really, a lot of people run it. The old one becomes abandoned and people gravitate to the new one. So, you know, it's sort of like some of these constitutional amendments that take effect when 75 percent of the states ratify them. And it might take 200 years. You, mm -hmm. you do you know, accumulate okay. the support of people and it's very much an open ended process. That's very interesting. So, so let me, I, I, I want to go back just a little bit to sort of arguments pro and con in a different direction. One, you, you alluded to sort of earlier, one of the arguments for crypto is, is a stable store of value that like, you know, the, the, the Fed might decide tomorrow to print lots, like the Fed will decide tomorrow to print lots and lots of money and devalue the dollars in my bank account. And that would be very bad. If I live in, you know, Venezuela or whatever, they might destroy my livelihood. And the kind of argument is if all of my money was in crypto, then my money would be worth a lot. It would have far less purchasing power today than it did a year and a half ago. So, you know, this is like the argument that crypto is a hedge against inflation. It kind of seems like as inflation has gone up, the value of crypto has gone down. So do you really empirically buy the claim that crypto is, you know, crypto is a defense against these potential conditions, against central bank malfeasance or against general inflation of whatever kind? 
Yeah, when we began, you cited my paper, Is Bitcoin a Real Currency? And the the argument of that paper is exactly, you know, it, it raises a lot of skepticism about the suitability of crypto as a store of value by pointing to the volatility. So it's not so much that crypto has dropped 70% in the past year, but there have been many times where it's dropped 70%, but after periods where it tripled. And in general, it's it's had a very impressive rate of return. It's almost 200% a year since it began to trade in 2010, but it's been a wild ride. And you like your money not to be so risky on a day-to-day -day basis. The the standard deviation of crypto returns when I calculated them was 9% per day, which is just horrifyingly high. And it's not suitable for something to be thought of as money. So I think, you know, not only is the technology not really built to support a large user community, but the volatility of it is the Achilles heel. It's really what has discouraged people from adopting it widely as a payment system. Let's turn a little bit to the to the other uh, regulatory landscape, which is like extremely confusing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there are three or four different agencies that could conceivably regulate crypto. They're all kind of trying to figure out if they should regulate crypto. I don't really know. Can you just sort of give us the Cliff Notes versions of what the current regulatory regime around crypto is and where it could likely go in the next couple of years yeah, with I players? Even before we start ticking off agencies, what people tend to misunderstand, and I think U.S. senators like Elizabeth Warren are at the head of the list of who misunderstands this, is that nobody's in charge of crypto, that you're trying to regulate a computer program on a decentralized network. So there are many fantasies and a lot of grandstanding in Washington about how we need to regulate this, we're going to regulate it. Good luck. There's no one to hold accountable. And the people who designed it precisely you know, wanted it to be beyond the reach of regulation and they did a pretty darn good job. So I think a lot of the discussion about crypto regulation is purely aspirational. Unlike a bank where there's a bank president or a board of directors and you can hold those people in contempt or throw them in jail, there's no such agent in a crypto network. There's no leadership. And so to talk about regulating it is very much a fantasy for the most point. Now, Imagine that you could, and you look to the various agencies that we have, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, has probably been the most aggressive by saying that these are essentially speculative investments that look a lot like stocks and bonds. And so this belongs to us. We're going to regulate this. And they've even put some rules out there for subcategories of things like initial coin offerings. There are big problems, though, that we have legal definitions of what is and what is not a security, and much of crypto doesn't fit that definition terribly well. And as an economist, I can tell you that a security is something that pays dividends or interest. There's cash flows and typically gives you voting rights to participate in governance as a stockholder or maybe as a bondholder. You don't get any of that with crypto. Great. So. I think legally, the securities regulators always been on very shaky ground. And even if they did have the authority, there's the whole issue of enforcement, you know, the ability to actually hold accountable a piece of software for doing something wrong. Right. There is then the commodities regulator, which says that crypto is really more like barrels of oil, bushels of wheat. It's a commodity. And the regulation of commodities is much more benign than securities. So I think crypto people might prefer the CFTC as opposed to the SEC. 
But the same problems exist with enforcement. You do see people opting into regulation, like asking the agencies to oversee them and to you know, give them some type of seal of approval. And this is interesting. But a lot of the industry is not only in the cloud, but offshore in such a way that these agencies can't really touch it. The IRS would like to tax crypto in the way that you tax the capital gains on stocks and bonds. You could tax capital gains on crypto. And in principle, I think the law is on their side, but the enforcement is really tricky. And there's all kinds of things on blockchains like forks and airdrops that just are not anticipated by the tax law. I think probably the most successful regulation has actually been in the realm of banking. We regulate something called money transmission which is if you want to send money broadly defined from person A to person B, you have to register with each of the 50 states. And a lot of the people who've actually been thrown into jail, it's been state-level prosecutions for violating, for instance, the New York money transmission regulations. And I think that arguably the statutes definitely extend to crypto, but you, you still come back to the problem of enforcement. So... We haven't made a lot of progress toward this issue in the United States, and I think other countries have been much more thoughtful. But to the extent that regulators have taken an interest, it's almost always with an eye toward reining it in and not paying much attention to their dual mission of capital formation and encouraging entrepreneurship. And I think you really have to wonder why much of what they try to do is to, to throw the baby out with the bathwater, to, to kill the infant in the crib when there's really very interesting technology here that is probably going to be around for a long time. So, I mean, it sounds like you're talking about regulating the technology itself. What about, it's like Sam Bankman-Fried, you know, people are saying he's going to go to jail. So what would, what would that be? Like what, what law yeah. would he have violated? You know, what's that kind of avenue? There are people who have created brokerages and custodial entities. They call themselves exchanges or you know lenders. They look a little bit like the banks and the exchanges that we already have. It's not clear that they're really covered by any of the regular laws for these things. You know, Maybe the laws for money transmission and so forth. But Sam Bankman-Fried's platform, FTX, is not really a FINRA broker-dealer. I think if you're going to go after him, it would just be for very classical fraud. There are you know, very broad federal laws for wire fraud, where you use electronic transmissions mm -hmm. to deceive and mislead people. It appears that FTX accepted deposits from people around the world and then didn't do with those deposits what they had represented to the, right. the customers. And, you know, and that's just a case of fraud. I don't think yeah. you need to go yeah. to the agencies. And if I were the prosecutor, I'd be looking toward a simpler approach that doesn't require detailed technical explanations to juries and so forth. Sam, of course, is in the Bahamas. You know, that he's offshore. Everyone in crypto is offshore because they want to be beyond the reach of some of these laws and statutes. So if they did wish to prosecute him in the US, the first thing they have to do is serve process on him and then extradite him and then convince people that his conduct was covered by American law, not Bahamian law. This is, this is all a heavy lift. And for all the speeches on the floor of Congress, this is a guy who's offshore in a different jurisdiction, not obviously covered by any of the regular laws. And it'll be interesting to see how and if they try to move against him. 
I <laughs> now 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 we're moving into my passion, my passion, which is putting criminals in prison. Because it does seem to me relevantly that as as you allude to, look, you can get the guy on something. Everybody's violating federal law. It's doable. You, you and I have violated federal law unwittingly. This is the uh, felony is a day thesis. But I wonder if that, you know, gets to a bigger point at crypto, which is sure it's a decentralized network. Sure, it doesn't rely on central banking. Sure, it's sort of hard for regulators to touch. But a sort of broader historical reality is that centralized societies usually beat out decentralized ones because they're more centralized. They you know, they they have concentrations of, the of power. Soviets, I guess. Yeah, well, they, they have concentrations of power that, relatively speaking, the concentrations of power that make it easier for them to crush their foes. So, do you think I, that I can't disagree with you more? I okay. mean, I, everyone who's tried to over centralize power. And the latest example is the great dictator of China. It, it typically blows up in your face. You know, it's the decentralized democratic countries that are the least worst. In Wait, in, 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 in absolute terms, America is decentralized or centralized? America is a very decentralized country. We're federated. Most I would call like I would call like sub-Saharan Africa decentralized. Right. Like like, yes, allegedly America is decentralized. But also, I don't know, the federal government. Extracts huge quantities of value and then redistributes it. And spends I mean, it on, I mean, I mean, I mean, in absolute I mean, I historical think, terms, this is a pretty I mean, decentralized I, country compared to, say, France and certainly to countries like Russia, China, and so forth. But it's pretty centralized compared to crypto, abstractly. Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, Charles, I think, I think maybe a better. I see what you're saying that the, the maybe the better way to frame it is state versus non-state. Sure. Right. Like, 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 like that's what's going on here, right? The question. I mean, I mean, the, the, I think. The way to reframe Charles's point is that states tend to win out over non-states, right? I don't know. You know, every central bank in the history of the world has failed except two, the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve. The Bundesbank in Germany is, you know, melted down multiple times in the last hundred years. It's it's very, very hard to to sustain these things historically. The U.S. is really quite unique. And I would say that we're a young country and we haven't had the opportunities <laughs> sure. to fail that France or Japan or you know many other countries have been through several iterations of. So I wouldn't be overconfident about this. And I think, you know, the the great strength of our country is that we decentralize decisions to markets. You know, we permit creative destruction. We don't overregulate and we have an economy based on freedom and free exchange that tends to outcompete most of the other economies. And this is it requires a lot of trust in individuals. And you you may have seen that we don't even run elections the same way from one county to another. You know, there's extreme amounts of decentralization in political power and so forth that is overall, I think, a virtue of our system. Yeah. I mean, I, I was with you for a lot of that answer, but I think the elections thing is actually an example of where maybe like a little more sense. Well, it's not so much centralization per se, but it's, yeah, it's look, you want you want great. you want competence yeah. you want competence and first world election administration, which I think our decentralized system has undermined in various ways. We can do another episode. But on, yeah, that's on a different administration. Uh, yes, <laughs> I I I I want to turn us very briefly as as we're sort of getting towards concluding thoughts to thinking about what comes next. So this is you know this is always the easy question. Five years from now, what does crypto look like? What I've 
seen coming from the earliest days, and I think this is very much underway, is that the technology will be co-opted, not just by the big banks and exchanges, but essentially by the central banks themselves, that you already see central bank digital currency in China. And it's very much being worked on by the European Central Bank, the, the Swedish Central Bank very far down the road, the Australians are testing this. I think the physical currency, the bills and banknotes that you grew up with will be gone in 10 years, and it will be replaced by a programmable type of money that resembles Ethereum issued by the Federal Reserve. And there are both opportunities and quite a bit of risks involved in this, but I think this is where we're going. I was going to say, and our viewers can't see me, but I was making a series of faces when you said that. And you know, my, my, my response to this is that, I mean, look, regulators and the police can just take all of my money right now. Like, I don't actually have all my money under my mattress. Bank of America is all of my money. It's just sort of numbers in Bank of America system. But this seems like it would make it particularly easy for regulators to take all of my money. No, that's kind of the point. You know, Americans pay about 83% of the taxes that they should, and they could get the other 17% and then cut the tax rate by a sixth. You can give COVID relief only to people who have COVID and not to everybody in the whole damn country. You can target assistance regionally, you know, build bridges only where bridges are falling down instead of giving money to everybody. If you if you make the programmable money a substitute for the political process we have now, which is, you know, the pork barrel, you might have a lot more precision in economic policy and allow people to hang on to more of their money. A lot of blunt instruments in government's toolkits today that you can improve on a great deal with programming the money. And you can end tax right. evasion and money laundering and so forth. And for the vast majority of this, of us, this would be a good thing. But don't don't you also I mean, I guess it, this isn't it's not centralized planning per se, but it is it, this is an example of of potentially the state getting even more power. Right. Oh, yeah. Over. I mean, it's a little it's a little scary. Right. You know, you say, well, you could only give the covid relief to people who have covid. But, you know, I've I've done reporting on various schemes of kind of like, I don't know, like race conscious distribution of covid drugs, things like that. And I'm wondering, you know, how could say woke bureaucrats in this new crypto cryptological federal reserve like i don't know i mean what could they do I, I i can imagine making all doing all kinds of crazy targeted policies designed to engineer certain social outcomes right we yeah, know we already do this in our politics. yeah <laughs> but you could do it but you could do it let's even forgive better, everyone's student right? loans right but you could do it but you could do it with more like technological precision which in it's great if you like the goal, but if you don't yeah. like the goal of the regulators, it's, it's kind of scary, so, right? To be sure, my prediction was a positive one, and it was not a yeah. normative recommendation. Yeah, sure, I, sure. I yeah. see this coming from a mile away, and I think it will need to be managed very carefully in terms of political oversight. The, the central bank in particular is probably going to have to become more accountable to Congress, that right now we nominate people for 14-year terms. They don't even get audited at the Federal Reserve. You know, there's not, not a lot of accountability, and you're probably going to need to build some of that into the, um, into the statute. You know, the Federal Reserve Act will be amended to create much more of a connection between the wishes of the people and the wishes of the central bank. Well, and so then how does the, I mean, your your kind of initial case for crypto was this 
you know, this is a way to kind of escape the whims of the yeah. of the central bank. How does how does the central bank itself getting into crypto change or not change that analysis? No, it's hugely ironic that, you know, I think if you look at what the crypto people were trying to achieve, in many ways, they've achieved the opposite. It was supposed to be a completely private currency with this pseudonymous system of wallets on a blockchain. Turns out that you can invert those wallets really easily and figure out who controls them. And it's, you know, it's the opposite of secret. It's the most transparent financial system there's ever been. There's no privacy at all. And, you know, rather than putting the central bank out of business, it becomes a tool for the central bank. The moment where the light went off for me is all the way back in 2013, where the U.S. Senate was holding hearings on crypto just to try to figure out what it was. And Bernanke testified that this is interesting technology and it has a role to play. And I thought, for the life of me, why would the head of the Federal Reserve be endorsing this? And then, you know, I, I really... Very quickly, it clicked that, yeah, of course, they would use this to collect all the tax to right. spending, you know, and the technology is almost irresistible. So I mean, it, it didn't take the central banks long to say this is what we've always dreamed right. of. But would, would you what if would you still see then people who are paranoid about this? Couldn't could they still use, you know their own private cryptocurrency that the federal government's not involved in to still try to sort of skirt the centralizing tendency? Or would that just not we, work? We've always admitted private money in the United States. Not yeah. every country handles it the same way. But in the extreme, people could go back to barter. You know, they could trade bars of gold or seashells that, you know, mm -hmm. this, is, this has happened in human history that if people wish to resist the monetary regime, they find some commodity, you know, salt played this role for many yeah. years. And I, I think as a means of protest, people might opt out of the system and, you know, either use foreign currencies, just as the dollar, in right. fact, is used in many countries, or use some type of commodity that is suitable as a unit of account, medium of exchange and, and store of value. Why, why couldn't they just, maybe I'm not understanding, but why couldn't they use just other cryptocurrencies? No, they could. Yeah. I think the cryptos, though, have a problem of scalability. Right. And okay. Yeah. With Bitcoin, only four people per second worldwide can use the network, and that's not very many. Yeah. So, you know, I think you're a long way from having a viable okay. crypto yeah. that's, that's I widely adopted. I see. I see. Makes sense. Why don't we Why don't we take that as an opportunity to move to, to closing thoughts, Aaron? What's your takeaway from the conversation? I'm still a kind of crypto neophyte, but I think I understand it a little better now in right. star guest which i which i appreciate i have to say i mean the way we, we we're leaving it both makes me understand much better the appeal of this and why it's taken off and i'm inclined to think look this isn't just you know a scam for buying drugs there's a lot of real use cases here but also by the same token because it's not just a scam for buying drugs it has the potential to really reshape society in pretty radical ways and you know my one there is sort of the the efficiency free market libertarian case for this of ah well you know we'll just we'll just collect all the taxes more efficiently and, and you know they'll generate surplus that'll be great but then there's there's sort of the more classic just fear of state power libertarian in me that thinks this is this is potentially moving us towards some some chine in some chinese directions that i i don't love so I don't know. I'm it, it, 
this conversation both made me smarter and a lot more alarmed about the all the potential things that could go wrong. I don't know, Charles, what did, where does this leave you? I think as an investor, I'm much more bullish on crypto than I was at the start of the conversation. I'm going to buy so you're, you're going to contribute to the problem because you're yeah, going to now buy into it and legitimize it. Well, they, and might, then... they might ban all the non-government cryptos and that would become an issue, but in terms of their... You know, in terms of their how, how would they do that? That's actually a question. So could no. they do that? No, as long as right. computer... Depends what you would ban. You know, it, it's decentralized. You can't unplug it or turn it off. Yeah, but 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 if all states prohibit real uh, pro, pro, prohibit people operating within the jurisdiction from accepting anything other than government sanctioned dollars, then sure, you can't take it yeah. away from people. You know, this That's is one of the power. in history. There's nothing to promote a currency like a local government trying to ban it. It usually has exactly the opposite effect of making it you know more popular. More well, then what it. Wouldn't people just then trade the current, go through a number of trades through different kinds of cryptocurrencies until they eventually can convert it to, I don't know, Swiss francs, then they convert yeah. to francs. No, there like there's some, there's going to be a way around it. I yeah. mean, I, I go to, um, you know, a place like Argentina and there's two exchange rates, or I, you know, back in Soviet Russia, they had the black market rate and the official rate, you know, many countries do this. And the black market very quickly emerges to fill the void and, you know, find the market clearing price. It, it's very hard for governments to bring to use money. And then I guess, I guess, can I just ask one more thing? No, yeah, I'm just, this is interesting because a... I'm thinking about like the great firewall of China and how China really aggressively regulates the internet. How does, so, so would this be a limit to kind of, those sort of internet ambitions that China has? Like how much can China really regulate crypto given what it's already uh, managed to regulate? The Chinese case is a very telling one because they very quickly got overtaken by two private cryptos that were put out there by Alibaba and WeChat, the, the two mm -hmm. payment systems, Alipay and WeChat Pay. And in a very short period of time, they became much more important than the regular banking system and the central bank. So you now see a Chinese crypto renminbi that is very much in reaction to the success of the media companies issuing their own crypto payment systems. And we didn't talk wow. about this much, but I think it's not the central bank that you need to worry about in this discussion. It's a couple of companies called Amazon and Google. What if they decide to go into the payments business and begin issuing their own money and you know taking the seniorage away from the central bank? You would think of yourself as a citizen of Google instead of a citizen of the United States. And that's, you know, you may view the central bank as a very benign actor in this drama in the same way that the Chinese got caught flat-footed by Alibaba and Jack Ma. Right. You could see Bezos and Zuckerberg, you know, being our central bankers in 20 years. And, uh, you know, I think you want that even less. Yeah. So, I mean, so, I mean, it really, even, even the most sort of totalitarian state in the world was not able to resist the-, the Yeah, political. very that's much pretty, playing that's defense. Pretty crazy. You know, who's the yeah. most powerful guy in China is not that idiot dictator, it's Jack Ma, and both of them yeah. know that. And, you know, it's it's very interesting. In the old days- Make him disappear. That, they would take him out and shoot him, but now he lives on a yacht in Ibiza and it's interesting times, but the social media companies have many advantages in this whole discussion that you know may make the central banks more envious than than anything else. I, I think they're better at IT, they're better at customer engagement, they probably have better functions for creating money, 
And it's going to be a challenge for the central banks to keep up with them. The Chinese have already learned this. I think, yeah, I mean, this is this is part of why I'm bullish. It's, it's like I really am persuaded there's a, lot of, there's a lot of value, there's a lot of efficiency on the table that hasn't been picked up yet. And that means in the long run, there's value in technology. Even it's going to be shaky. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm a very low-risk investor, so I'm not trying to put my money there in the meantime. I'm a very, very conservative investor, as I am many things. But, you know, I think I, I, I think our guest has convinced me it's not all nonsense, which I didn't really think it was going in, but I, I appreciated the articulation. I think he's, he's done an admirable job of that. Why don't we do some recommendations? Aaron, do you have one for our listeners? Yeah, it's one many of our listeners may have already seen, but a former institutionalized guest, Kelsey Piper, who's, she's the one we interviewed about effective altruism. She had this really hilarious interview with Sam Bankman fried that was conducted entirely over Twitter DMs that she then published on Vox's website in the wake of FTX's collapse, which it's funny, especially in light of this conversation, I look back at that exchange and think, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried admits very candidly, regulators are stupid and don't know what they're doing. This conversation makes me almost more sympathetic to that, that view, but it also, I don't know, I'm, I'm now inclined to contrast this this guy's kind of, I think, but almost bumbling persona where he, he manages to just admit all these ridiculous, crazy things to Kelsey Piper without his lawyers present, contrast that to this kind of sinister potential, you know, totalitarian crypto state that we've been, we, we've been prophesizing. I don't know. It makes, makes me think that the Sam Bankman Fried's collapse is, is, it's not the end of crypto. It's 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 just a bump along the road to a a very different world. But anyway, I commend the interview that Kelsey did with Sam Beckman Fried. Yeah, I think the the object lesson of that interview is that if you're talking to a journalist and you haven't said you're off the record, you're on the record. It's a very <laughs> good lesson to learn. Elementary, very good lesson to learn. Yeah, these guys yes. know this insane. She she had um, she had even reached out to him that like before asking him right. to talk. So so the idea that was that was really. Just like inexcusably dumb, I think. But anyway, um, right. You know, even yesterday, Sam was speaking live to an investor. Incredible. Conference. You know, I I would really, if if I were his parents who are law professors, I would tell him to listen to his lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> My recommendation this week: the Bloomberg columnist Matt Levine, who runs a, a popular newsletter called Money Stuff about the peculiarities of crypto. The, the, not just crypto, he writes a lot of crypto, but he also writes just like weird stuff that happens in markets. It's a very interesting letter, newsletter. They gave him uh, an entire issue of Bloomberg Business Week to write about crypto. It's like from the ground up, Matt Levine explains crypto. I've been reading through it on and off in the background for some time. It's entertaining. It's a good introduction. I recommend it. David, do you have recommendations for our listeners from your own work or others? You know, I'm currently studying the arrival of the crypto mining industry in the state of Texas which, you know, is something that nobody expected. They were evicted from China a little over a year ago. And Texas has welcomed them for the unlikely reason that they actually promote the development of sustainable energy by providing a buffer that they will take up the excess wind power on very windy days, and they're willing to shut down when demand is very high. So I think there's a very interesting contrarian view about the environmental footprint of crypto that it's actually doing something very useful and in a jurisdiction that nobody would have expected. You know, Texas has always seemed not to care about the environment, but frankly, for all the right reasons, they're encouraging the industry to come down 
and subsidize the growth of wind power, which is you know progressing very impressively. That is okay. interesting. That that's very interesting. Well, I commend that. I commend that to our listeners. David, thank you so much for joining us today. All right. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. And thank you as always to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, smart contracts that you'd like to send our way, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sibarium. It's about all the time we're giving to this episode. So until next time, I'm Charles Van Lehman. I'm Aaron Sibarium. And you've been listening to Institutionalized. We hope you'll join us again soon. Mm-hmm.